Fred, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I, I want to just kind of go back in time to to a young man who is living in, in Palmer, just outside of Cleveland, um, and just say to him, just to let you know, when you grow up, you're going to be listed as uh, one of the 25 most influential consultants in the world. You will uh, have written many, many best-selling books. You, uh, the economist, will refer to you as the high priest of loyalty in the future. Um, a 10-year-old you would say what exactly? What's a consultant? <laughs> I have no idea what those things were. Uh, Parma is not the center of uh, uh, business uh, leadership or or uh, thought, so it, I had a lot to learn. Yeah, no, absolutely, and you've definitely made up for that uh, that lack of knowledge in those early years. So, um, do you mind just uh, just for a little bit of context for the audience, um, just giving us? A, I know it's difficult, but just give us a little bit of an overview of your career to date. Sure, I. Uh... When I got out of school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I thought I might want to go to law school, but got cold feet. So I was a bartender for a while and uh, learned some vital skills in that role. Ended up going to business school and joined Bain & Company um, between the first and second year of the MBA program at Harvard and uh, have stayed there ever since. So I've really only had one meaningful job in my whole life. Um, Although that job has evolved, it has focused on one issue, which was early on I recognized accountants measured a business success in a framework of financial fictions, and they didn't take into account the most fundamental driver of business prosperity. And, and that simple idea that treating customers so they come back for more and bring their friends is at the core of a good business, a good economic business, a good ethical, moral business, you know, treating people right. So they come back for more and refer their friends That's that's pretty high minded, but that's at the core of all prosperity in business and accountants don't measure it today. And so many, many business leaders are, are going the wrong direction and, and essentially wrecking their business franchise. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, you know, as you, as you've kind of touched on, but, um, you know, most people will know, even if they don't know you by name, most business leaders will definitely know the NPS uh, kind of system. Um, could you, uh, you know, it, it's just so interesting to kind of do the research into into NPS. Obviously, it's been going for the best part of 20 years now, but clearly you've been a, a massive advocate of, of customer loyalty. Um, you've written a number of best-selling books on the topic. Um, where would you say this passion came from, um, you know, within you? Was there something like a, an early memory or something that you can remember kind of the genesis of this? What, what kind of gave you that passion? Yeah, I saw it. My, uh, my uncle um, ran a series of large Fortune 500 businesses. And um, as I got to know his colleagues, his investors and, and customers, I felt like those business communities were the best communities I had ever encountered. They were better than churches, schools, nonprofits. They, they really treated people right. There was a, a high level of accountability, but these were functional families and, um, and they were very successful financially. It, and that model just wasn't wild, widely shared it in business school. The, the idea that your primary, duty was to your shareholders and maximizing shareholder value made everything else okay, even if it was sort of ethically shady. That this, uh, 
this is just so inconsistent. So I suppose the, the, the animating, the drive was, how do I reconcile these two worldviews? Which one's right? And, and as I've come to recognize, really the only way to build a prosperous, sustainable business is that high road of treating people right. Um, and, and so I've tried to develop tools and techniques and frameworks and, and um, practical uh, solutions that help leaders take that path. But, you know, I, although, as, although I've, I'm proud of what we've achieved, still only 10% of business leaders today believe that the primary purpose of a business is to uh, make their customers' lives better. And that's just mind-boggling to me because it's the only purpose that actually leads to uh, positive outcomes in the long run. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and since you came up with the NPS system, um, you know, as I said twenty years ago, um, how how do you think it's changed? You know, you mentioned that statistic about ten percent of of business leaders looking at that view. Do you think it's got better, or do you think it's something that has largely stayed the same? Oh, we've made progress. There are companies who have adopted Net Promoter, and um, in this open source community where people who want to use Net Promoter ideas don't have to pay me anything. <laughs> they, they, they often get in touch and, and, and sometimes they hire Bain & Company. And they, sometimes they hire me to come give keynotes or um, fireside chats. But for the most part, it's been a community who has adopted these ideas, put them to work and shared them. And it has been astonishing. Uh, you know, Apple was one of the early adopters of Net Promoter because their mission was to enrich the lives of their customers. And, and when they saw Net Promoter, they said, they said, oh, well, this finally, here's a practical way of measuring progress on this mission. They, they uh, hired a uh, technology vendor, Medallia, who um, probably like a lot of other tech vendors at that time, but then because Apple shaped what Medallia did because they, you know, they're, they're the, the gorilla says, so they, what they wanted for their people and the branches and their customers is what they forced Medallia to, to create. And, and so the idea that everybody in an Apple store, an employee has an iPhone uh, in their wallet and, and the instant customer feedback comes in from a customer they touched, they get it. And it's designed not to get people in trouble, they don't rank order everybody by their score and embarrass the people on the bottom quartile like a car dealer does. It's to feel the love. They want their employees, when they innovate and strive and, and, and succeed in making customers love doing business with, with Apple, um, they want them to uh, feel the love in a way that they know their bosses and their bosses' bosses are going to be able to see and celebrate. So you know, take that and multiply by the thousands of practitioners who have used Net Promoter effectively, and you've built a whole foundation of intellectual, uh, an idea of how business should be run. And it's, it's built itself into the, the tech vendors. It, in, uh, in other ways, certainly the economics are clearer to people. Nevertheless, it is so revolutionary to traditional MBA thinking that the primary purpose of a company is to make customers' lives better, as opposed to investors, or it's really fashionable today to talk about all your stakeholders as equally important. That's just wrong. 
you have to pick one. You know, obviously you have to serve all your stakeholders and treat them up to this golden rule standard or you're being abusive. But you have to exist. You have to have your purpose has to be to make one of those stakeholders uh, lives better. And and customer is the only one that makes sense, because when you when you solve a customer's problem and make them happy, that not only generates the back for more and bring their friends economic flywheel, it just makes it a better place to work. Because when you put employees as a leader, you put your team in a position where they can enrich the lives of their customers. You have enriched those employees' lives because that act of service, where you hear the you know you hear the standing ovations and see them, that's the best thing a leader can do. So so things align. But but I, I you know in all honesty, the last book I wrote, Winning on Purpose, makes it clear this is still an uphill battle. It is a minority point of view. It's a majority point of view for the winners in business, but overall, it's a minority point of view. Yeah, and, and taking a step back, you know, you you mentioned your latest book. Um, it definitely builds on those initial ideas that you had for MPS. Um, could you just kind of give us an idea of how NPS has evolved over the years? Um, it's definitely had its its you know critics, but overall, and the sentiment of it is is absolutely spot on. So, could you just could you just give us a bit of a timeline as as to this evolution? Yeah, when I started by focusing on the economics of loyalty, the microeconomics, this uh, this flywheel, and I, I, the metric I used was retention rates. And it was, it's a good metric, you know, retention continues to be a, uh, an important way of measuring uh, whether you've made customers happy or not. If they defect, you have not <laughs> made their life better. Um, but it was too late in the process. Oftentimes you, a customer leaves after a, a long period of disappointments. And so it's hard to assign accountability. It's hard to get that customer back and solve the issue in a timely way. So I was searching for what, what would help businesses do a snapshot in real time. Uh, are they building a customer loyal, an asset, uh, a customer or, or diminishing it? And, and would, eventually it would, that customer would defect. And, and so I came uh, probably grudgingly to the idea it had to be a survey because I'm not a fan of surveys. They waste people's time. They're, complicated. You know, I spent a lot of time in my graduate's courses and at Harvard understanding sampling issues and you know, statistical accuracy when you're, you're so most people won't go to the trouble to understand all those things. So the instant you introduce a survey as your tool, you're bringing on a lot of baggage. That said, I said, if I have to have a survey, one question, how close could I get to perfection with just one question? And the answer was, pretty darn close, close enough that it wasn't worth asking questions two, three, four, five, and six and, and, and 20 or 30. Um, and so we tested which question was the best signal of a customer's life being enriched. So they would come back for more and bring their friends. And the best one was how likely you'd recommend us to a friend. Um, zero through 10 was, was the effective scale because everybody gets zero. You don't have to put a, you don't have to actually put any words on that. People know what zero means and, and so forth. So, you, you know, you try to get all the friction out of this, this survey and, um, and the likelihood to recommend on that zero to 10 was the best predictor of customers coming back for more, uh, expanding their share of wallet, actually referring friends, 
treating customers, there are all of these signals that you have enriched a customer's life. And this one question did a great job. Now, could you get a more statistically accurate um, estimate if you asked 30 questions? Of course. If you could get the customer and lay down on the on the psychologist's couch and talk to him for 30 hours, you could get a better estimate. But of course, you don't have the time. And you, know, you need something practical. And this one question is powerful. Now, where did it go wrong? People stopped thinking about the difference between a overall relationship net promoter score versus an individual transaction. And they, they would confuse these things. They would start linking survey scores to frontline bonuses, which completely biases the system. And you know, when, when customers know that, geez, I'm going to get Johnny in trouble if I give him anything less than a 10 or in a star system, you know, if I give him less than five stars, um, he's going to, his family won't be able to eat. I don't want that to happen. It was the company that screwed up with their terrible policies, not Johnny. So these links to accountability destroyed the reliability. And, and I've been fighting to try and get people back on track, but in the back of my mind, I know you cannot have auditable surveys. You can't stop gaming and cheating or, or worrying that, oh, I don't want to give my Uber driver four stars because I know they get fired. If they're 4.6 is the point where uh, an Uber driver gets dropped from the system. So you've got everyone being taught as a customer, don't give anything less than 10, stop, 10 or five stars unless you want that person fired. So you get monstrous inflation in scores and the score itself becomes a little bit less meaningful. Now, of course, every net promoter survey done by Fred's rules will have a why, an open text verbatim to explain why and how to get better. And so the richness is in that text. Nevertheless, people need accountability. And I, I agree. You have accountability for cash flow. You have accountability for, you need something auditable and measurable. And that led to the recognition that it's, it's earned growth. You know, it's this back for more and, and refer their friends. The signals that we need to hold teams accountable to for delighting customers is we need to keep track of how many of the customers they touched, increased their repeated and increased their purchases. And then the purest signal is how many of them referred their friends. Because that is the highest, rec you know, when you co-brand your personal reputation and recommend a brand, you, you, that's the highest thing, uh, signal that you can give that this company has enriched my life and I'm confident they'll enrich yours. That's pretty high standard. And, and I came to the recognition that businesses just don't measure that. They think referral is nice, but you have to measure it. It's so fundamental. And I bumped into a company called Mention Me, um, run by a, a Bain alum who is actually measuring referrals with a tech platform that reminded me a lot of what Medallia was like in the old days, getting started. But I saw, gosh, if you can have customers referring their friends through a tech platform where you could keep track of who's referring, how often, for the people who come in as refereds, how much they buy and how profitable and how they behave, you suddenly can get a pure understanding of the what the economics that are driving your business. And it illuminates this flywheel 
back for more and bring your friends in a way that very few businesses have. The only businesses that understood it had brilliant intuitive leaders that saw the referral was 98% of the insight. If I can treat people so they refer their friends, that's how I stay on this path. And I think the most exciting thing going forward in Net Promoter is getting referral into the measurable areas of accountability uh, so we can learn and hold people accountable on, on that dimension. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and just full disclosure, you're talking to someone who worked in retail here in the UK, whose commission was directly linked to NPS. So, you know, it, it was a love-hate relationship, shall we say, but <laughs> yeah, that company no longer exists. So I think that tells you what you need to know. But, um, you know, as far as, you know, NPS, when done right, it is undoubtedly, you know, one of the greatest systems that's been, um, you know, kind of created. And, you know, it's it's... You know the stats. I think are two thirds of the world's big companies use NPS or a version of it, which I'm sure for you must be really exciting. But you know, obviously over the years, are there any kind of examples that kind of stick in your head that go like this? This is exactly, it, you know, this company is doing it in the spirit in which I, I, I came up with it. Well, there are far too many examples of people doing it the wrong way because they have the basic you know, their, their purpose is wrong, that their purpose is either to get rich or to be a great place to work or, or something else. They, companies who really do are committed to making their customers' lives better before any of the other stakeholders, uh, then I see brilliant things. So I mentioned how Apple had created an app so all of their frontline employees could get the, uh, you know, in, in, instead of the traditional thing that big companies do, which is, gee, I'm going to buy tech at headquarters. So I'm going to buy tech that makes me a headquarters employee more powerful and, and have smarter insights. Um, that's how most of the customer feedback systems uh, have evolved. The, the best ones have empowered frontline teams with apps and they want the information out in the front line so that the front line can feel the love and learn and run experiments and innovate. Um, the headquarters comes second in, in terms of relevance of learning. And, and so, you know, the enterprise rent-a-car comes to mind that they were the company that um, had a, was really the forefather of NPS. They had a two-question survey that went out to a sample of customers at every branch, and they held the team accountable um, in an appropriate way because the scores were in front of the team, you know, five or eight people that work in every branch, that uh, accountability makes sense. It, it, and there's verbatim comments and, and a closed loop when the breakthrough, Andy Taylor described to me the, at the time, the CEO of Enterprise said that they call uh, customers who give a failing grade, the branch manager calls them and apologizes and probes for the root cause and tries to figure out how to learn and then shares that with the branch team. And that idea of local learning and closing the loop, um, very, very powerful. And to this day, most companies can learn a lot if they would just pay attention to how enterprise uses their, their feedback system. The um, other important lessons in B2B, it takes subtle adjustments. It, it, when we put this into work at Bain & Company, Bain was probably the first place to ever adopt that promoter. Um, 
And, and the temptation was for the center to, uh, to try and hold all the partners around the world accountable to scores. And that doesn't work. That, you can't use surveys that way. Um, the only way a survey makes sense if you do it that way is when a third party runs it and it's double blind and you've got panels of customers of yours and your competitors and, you know, it's expensive. That's available for some industries. And now we have a syndicated opportunity with, with NPS Prism. It's a business that Bain's created, which at an economical uh, price can actually deliver trustworthy, reliable in scores that, that you can hold people accountable to. But when you're doing the survey yourself and, and, and people know it, you know, you, you just don't get very good results. What's the best thing? Let's see. Recently, as my daughter taught me a lot. My daughter, Jenny, uh, I described this in the book, but she worked, she ran a uh, customer service operation for the biggest uh, wine retailer in America called Total Wine and More. And uh, she knows I really love one question, but she said, Dad, I, I added a second one. And I go, oh, Jenny, God, everyone is adding questions. Is this really necessary? This is a lot of customers' time. And, and customers' time is precious to them. And she'd heard this before, and she's rolling her eyes like she always did at the dinner table. But she was right because she said, you know, we only ask the, the, the passives and especially the promoters a second question. Is there anything we could have done better? Or to make your experience even better. And, and she showed me that the verbatim comment explaining why they gave you a 10 was different for promoters than what they told you in the what you could do better. And it was very powerful insights. You know, oh, I, I, why did you give us a 10? Um, uh, Jerry at the checkout was incredible. Um, what could we do better? You know, the light is out in the in the street lamp behind your store where I park, and it makes me feel creepy at night. Um, and that's that's worth solving. And, and as promoters, customers who want you to succeed, they are the ones who give you these ideas that make your business better. So those are some of the examples of real brilliant steps forward that that have become part of the uh, the net promoter system canon. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, coming back to Bain and Company, it is obviously a global consultancy. So, you know, I presume been all over the world talking about the NPS system. And have you noticed regional differences or continental differences as you've gone along as far as culture goes? Is there anything that a certain part of the world is doing that you think, oh, well, we could really learn a thing or two from that? Well, the thing... No, the thing I've learned is every culture loves this idea of treating customers the way you'd want to treat a loved one. It inspires teams to be part of a community that treats people that way. What's different is different cultures have different scoring biases on surveys. So if in a zero to 10, Japanese squeeze the scale. They don't give many zeros and ones. They don't give many nines and tens. Do they refer Actually, this mentioned me that I mentioned to you that actually tracks behaviors of customers. Yeah, Japanese do give referrals. They just don't answer survey questions exactly the same way as people in Latin America. Um, rural Americans have different scoring biases than urban Americans. You, you can go down that rat hole forever. And, that, and when you hold people accountable to a score, that's all you'd want to talk about are these subtle inexplicable differences in, 
in scoring biases of different populations and segments. But that's not productive time spent. You just want to make sure you got a threshold of where is delight, where people are actually referring their friends, and where is failure, and create the appropriate closed loops to, uh, to learn from those and take action in the right part of the organization. You know, don't just learn it at headquarters. So then headquarters has to go out with a bunch of PowerPoint slides and convince the front line that they know something that they don't uh, understand when the front line is dealing with those customers every day. You know, that's an uphill battle. Design the learning systems to have a bias toward the right part of the organization who needs to learn these important ideas. Yeah, definitely. And I'm just intrigued to know, obviously, you mentioned before leadership and, you know, individual leaders, you know, doing a great job effectively and that kind of going down, um, you know, throughout the, the business. Um, have you noticed a correlation between, you know, leadership and quality of leadership um, versus the kind of company culture, um, especially when it comes to NPS? Have you noticed that, you know, the, the, the companies with the be better NPS scores are more likely to have good leadership. Is that a correlation that you, you could make? Yeah, it's very powerful. When I can talk to a leadership team uh, for 20 minutes and a, a handful of their frontline employees for another 20 minutes, and I'll know where they stack up in NPS versus their competitors. Um, it is purely a cultural uh, belief system. And... Um, that uh, that's a lot of people want to put in an MPS system, but the leadership doesn't really believe in customer centricity. They just think it's hygiene. We, you know, we should be serving all of our stakeholders, and they do this NPS, but then they keep putting in policies that are abusive of customers. Um, banks charging crazy fees, and online you'll search for a hotel, and then they they tack on a a resort fee that, that that was sort of hidden in the background and they made it hard to change your reservation at that point. It's any, any behavior you see out there that is abusive of customers and, and not the way you tr treat a loved one is a signal that the leadership is not good. I, uh, I'm sort of skeptical of financial journalists. Uh, I, I don't want to offend people too much, but there's an awful lot of young people writing for big, famous, you know, Wall Street journals and the Financial Times of the world. So I've, I've gotten a little jaded on this. But one of the uh, <clears throat> young reporters from the Financial Times said something just totally brilliant and, and made me recognize. She said, so what you're saying, uh, Fred, is that when you encounter one of these bad profits techniques, or, or someone is begging for a score, you know, only a 10 is a passing grade. That's really a signal that the leadership of that company is not high quality. And I said, oh, that's the best insight in years. You're exactly right. When you see this going on out in the field, that's a signal. These are not good leaders. They may have good intentions, but they are not effective. And it may be that they don't even have good intentions. But that's the signal that you shouldn't be buying from a company like that. You don't want your kids working at a company like that. And you, as, if you read chapter five of my last book, Winning on Purpose, you'll see you don't want investing your money in, their, in the shares of their stock either. Because those bad behaviors, they might make accounting earnings go up this quarter, but they essentially ruin the, the potential of that business 
to, uh, to achieve long-term sustainable growth. Because the only sustainable, profitable growth is this flywheel of treating customers so they come back for one and bring their friends. I did, I did laugh with doing the research when uh, I, I found out that your personal investment strategy is linked directly to NPS. And I think it's, it's done a right well, thing. Bain and Company for many years has had this uh, uh, eat your own cooking, you know, or, or uh, you know, whatever metaphor you want. But if you believe in something, then live by it. And I think this idea of the right way to measure success, the right way to drive prosperity is, is through getting companies to treat customers so they come back for more and bring their friends. I have insights into who that is. You know, some of it's from NPS Prism, which I talk about in the book. It's industry by industry. <clears throat> NPS Prism is showing who is best. And yes, I invested my own uh, personal funds in those in, NPS leaders. Why does it predict the future better than these brilliant stock market analysts? And, and uh, well, because they aren't really measuring the core driver of prosperity back for more and bring your friends. NPS carefully measured versus competitors is a really powerful signal. Now, I think even better will be referral rates. As the mentioned me's and their competitors make it clear and make it easy to measure what percentage of the new customers from each company in an industry are coming through a referral from existing customers, you'll have an even purer signal of who you, who you want to invest your money in. But you know, my, my strategy has beaten the stock market over the last decade um, by more than most private equity firms or these you know, these billionaires who, uh, that that's not the winning strategy. The winning strategy is figuring out which companies are generating referrals and that their growth is that most profitable source. It's, uh, customers, you know, loving customers, treating them in a way that makes them want this for a loved one. That's the, uh, the pure signal that you should search for if you want great investment results. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, again, talking about your latest book, you know, it's definitely um, a little bit more focused on leadership directly than maybe some of your other titles have. Um, and, you know, if you think about incredible business people and business leaders that you've come across, um, you know, could you just give, uh, you know, an account of, of, of an incredible story that you've had or an incredible encounter you've had with some business leader that's really, really stood out to you and, and that our audience can learn from? Yeah, well, one I talk about in the book is uh, Jim Sinegal, the founder of, of uh, Costco. And he uh, just example after example of how he got that company to treat customers right all the way to how they structure it. It's a membership. Um, so you buy a membership in Costco, which is one of the largest retailers in, in America and maybe the world today. Um, so their profits are essentially guaranteed just by the membership fees. And, uh, and then everything they do is to make the customer's life better because they have a fixed, you know, they don't mark stuff up. They don't high-low price and manipulate. They're always trying to get the best deal for their customers, very generous returns policies. Um, 
And he, he told me about, uh, well, something they do in every business meeting is somebody always asks what's in it for the customer. Uh, you know, it's an investment, it's a cost reduction, it's, it's a negotiation with a vendor. But you got to say, you got to be able to answer what's in it for the customer before they'll take that action. And it turns out that Jeff Bezos at Amazon um, actually lived close to, uh, to Senegal. They're, they're both headquartered outside of Seattle, Washington. And they had coffee together and, and, and he, he heard these stories. And so Amazon took this same philosophy of always giving the customer a great deal. And in the, early, in the early days, when I went online to buy something, you never knew if you're going to get a good price from Amazon. You have to go to eBay and you know, these other places. And you search around. Bezos made that go away. When you see a price on Amazon, you know it is a darn good price. You don't have to waste your time running around to see if. And at Costco, they even go the next step. And you said, you know, if this goes on price in the next night on sale and you get a better price in the next 90 days, we'll automatically give you that rebate. It's it, my, that's incredible. Um, so I, I love stories from Costco, but then I had a similar story in my old college bookstore. Um, I'm approaching my 50th college reunion, so I was going to buy a couple of chairs that have my college on the back, uh, sort of in the crest. And um, I bought the two chairs, and then I get an a, uh, email ad that the next week that now you get free cushions on these chairs. And I go, oh, geez, I just missed it. So I, I pinged the, the, the company with an email. They instantly credited it, you know, no complaints, no, no, didn't make it complicated. You have to log into your website and change the order. No, none of that. They just did it for me. So Costco kinds of behaviors are flowing into the, the general fabric of how good businesses run themselves. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really incredible. And yeah, no, thank you for sharing that story. And, you know, th there's definitely a, uh, you know, especially post kind of lockdowns during the pandemic, um, there's definitely a sentiment that kind of customer service, definitely in the UK, um, has gone down. You know, the excuses are there's teams working remotely and, you know, but the long waits uh, on, on hold, for example, to customer service and stuff like that for, for many places is incredibly frustrating for the consumer. So ha have you noticed since the pandemic that that's kind of something that's that's happened a bit more? Or is this do you think this is just kind of isolated to certain companies? No, I think um, I think customer service has not gotten better, um, and, I, and there's probably a good case that it has deteriorated. And part of it is, I think part of it is customers have been fed up in their personal lives. There's been a lot of sacrifice and frustration, and they just <laughs> they 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 share some of that bad uh, energy with with the frontline employees. Who they feel maybe they've got more control over these guys than they do over their spouse and their kids, so they can kick the dog, um, and that starts a nasty spiral. So I I think chapter six and seven of, of winning on purpose talks about are is everything the cust you know, is the customer always right? No, you know customers can be abusive and, and inappropriate and you know just like all of us we're not always right your spouse is not always right now there's a caring loving way of pointing that out to them and and getting it back into a, a healthy relationship and i i think frontline employees need more more help and more protection um you just can't have 
customers abusing your employees um, and, and treating them badly. So there's got to be discipline. You know, <laughs> you get a warning uh, and, and then you're out. Uber kicks people out, or at least they used to. They, if they abuse an employee or do something that's not safe, the customer gets kicked out of the system. They do that on airplanes. I think every company ought to have a process where customers know they're going to be held accountable to be productive, good community members, or they can't do business there. And a more energy, you know, that's not simple. You need to have safeguards and education and a um, appeal system, all these things. It's a lot of work, but it's worth it because people have to feel like they are, when they're part of a community, they are responsible for the success of that community. You can't have customers behaving like uh, idiots and making it terrible for the employees and the, and the other customers. And we've got to get a little bit better at, at that mutual feedback. And, and the models are starting, you know, um, Airbnb and VRBO um, or Uber. Customers rate the driver, driver rates the customer. Um, th this is a good thing for the development of, of business. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, you, you've, you, as we've kind of discussed, you know, throughout this whole conversation, you know, you've clearly got a passion for, for customer loyalty. Um, even though you've been with Bain since, like you said, 1977, um, you're around all these incredible leaders. I'm sure it's incredibly inspirational. Have you ever thought, you know, what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to start a business myself. Has that ever been a thought that you've kind of, you've kind of had? I started a small SaaS company called Huddle Up. Um, and I came to realize that you have to devote your whole life to that, not just 30 or 40 or 50%. So I sold it to a, uh, someone in the software business. Um, but yeah, my gift, my personal gift is not leadership of teams and, um, helping them stay as optimistic as they need to and, and inspiring them uh, uh, day in, day out. I, I different set of uh, skills. I can help those people and, and have over the years, but, but I've sort of figured out what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. No, that, that's absolutely right. Um, Fred, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. We are coming to the end of the podcast now. It's now time for a very special segment. We've teamed up with the Jill Dando News Center to bring you the good news postcard. Fred, today your question comes from Finley, age 10. Hello, my name is Finley and I'm from St. Anne's Church Academy School. And I have a question for you. What advice would you give to your younger self? Well, Finley, what advice would I give to my younger self? I would say the most important thing I've learned is to hang around with good people. Um, who you spend your time with it influences what you value, how you think about success, um, how you think about the community, and and uh, the best the best way to make your life better and and to have greater impact is to make sure the people you're spending your minutes with are the kind of people who are living the kind of life that you'd be proud to live and aspire to, to live that way. There's a temptation, especially for my younger self, to hang around with cool people and 
handsome or pretty people. And, and I think the older you get, the more you recognize how important it is to, to see through the superficial and, and uh, hang around with good hearted people who have high standards of excellence and, and can help you achieve that yourself. That is a brilliant question and a great answer from yourself. So thank you very much, Fred. Um, and kind of lastly, we are business leaders. So we have to ask you the question, what makes a great business leader? Great business leader understands that what makes a great business is treating customers in a way that, that enriches their life. It solves a problem. It makes them happy <laughs> or it makes them less troubled. And, and so committing yourself to building a team whose primary purpose is making those customers' lives better, better than anyone else can make them, it, it puts you on the right path. There's a thousand books written about how to do the small things on that path better, but they don't really contribute a lot unless you're on the right path. No, definitely. Um, Fred, again, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Do you have any final words for our audience today? Yeah, read Winning on Purpose, not just yourself, but give it to people in your organization to have to study groups. Go, go to the LinkedIn entry a few months ago with a company called Built, B-I-L-T, who has shown how the CEO is using this book in a reading discussion series across teams throughout his company in a way to build a customer-centric culture. It, it's genius. Absolutely. And where can people kind of follow your journey online and also find out more information about uh, Mention Me? Well, I would say with both Mention Me, go to their website. You'll learn a lot. Um, for me, go to uh, LinkedIn, uh, where I'm active with my newsletter and, and, and follow me and, and sign up for the newsletter. And also go to Bain's website, netpromotersystem.com. You'll, uh, you'll be glad you did. Mm -hmm.